there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I think it's good for us. It I think is it's good. good. <laughs> I think it's great but so for us. so is it detox from drugs. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Not as much fun, I've been told. <laughs> Never had to do that myself. Um, let's talk about Harry Maguire. There are so many different threats to Manchester United finishing in the top four or five. I just don't think it's a guarantee anymore. Thomas Partey not getting a move away makes Arsenal a worse team. There's not many things that I will nail my colours to the mask with, but I just do not see a scenario where Pochettino is a long-term success at Chelsea. Blocked is a word Gen Z have been accustomed to over the years, but football fans will have a lot more prior experience with this word. How, how often do you hear of someone's transfer being blocked and not being granted a move away? In this episode of TRE, that's short for the ripple effect, we'll be looking at the players who failed to secure a move over the summer, but also which transfers have been uh, an obstruction to their club and why some moves away will trigger a chain of events for some clubs this season as we evaluate the landscape of the Premier League but also the wider European and global game. The word of the week of course is blocked which means uh, obstructed or congested so as to make movement or flow difficult or impossible. Uh, Daniel does that sound familiar? <laughs> what a start, what a start to the podcast yeah, that is. telling me. Um, Daniel joins me, he is uh, HLTCO he has a YouTube channel. He is firing out content left, right and centre, uh, of course, on Twitter and on YouTube as well. New into the game. And uh, how, how are you finding that, the ripple effect of that on your life? What, the YouTube element? Mm. It's, uh, to be honest, I think because I'm at the beginning of said journey, from my perspective at least, there isn't as much pushback from people. Because I think, especially with Twitter, the more familiar people get with you, they have sort of prolonged beef from five years ago yeah. you might have said something that really right, went the, right, right the right. wrong way whereas the YouTube thing is more fresh right. so I'm, I'm enjoying the uh, pleasant side of it at the moment but I'm expecting it to change over time shall we say I remember someone said the bigger you get the like the harder it kind of becomes in terms of to try and keep everyone happy but I'm so that's something I'm kind of grappling with at the moment actually is the the idea of letting that go and like mm. and knowing that you I think I've always sort of try to be quite fair in, in what I create but you can't this is football like people are going to have different opinions so this, you can't tread that line perfectly for 280,000 people now so I'm, I'm now I think I, my, my lot will know all you guys who listen to me regularly and if you are new to the podcast the podcast always goes all over the place because I like to be curious that's uh, what we like to do here and if you are new and you enjoy it by the end please do give us a five star rating if not please don't um but yeah, my lot will know that I think I was get I was getting a bit aggy at the back end of last season mm. because I th- it, it I think the wave had hit the new wave of uh, like being big enough where people were just like really rude and I've not had that on YouTube and my my experience with Twitter is quite different because I generally use it as a, 
source to ask questions more mm. so than give any strong opinions on anything. Because I think generally I'm sort of in the middle of a lot of debates anyway, right? Mm. Um, so yeah, I've I, I've sort of had to grapple with that a little bit, and now I'm kind of going to go okay. I'm just going to sort of let let myself sort of um, drift off into the sea. You want to be careful with that. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, I do. It's it's an interesting one because obviously my social media life has been primarily on Twitter. The YouTube thing is new to me and Twitter in itself is a place where strong opinions tend to get the most traction. But I mean, I always say if you were to stand up in front of 150,000 odd people and give an opinion, a large percentage of those people are going to tell you you're wrong. But you're not really wired for it as a human being because it's not a normal thing to do unless yeah. you are, you know, a presidential candidate. Mm. So, yeah, it's just part of life, unfortunately. Uh, sorry to go here. Like, I just find it interesting. The, with Twitter as your main platform, the the sort of the ripple effect of that on you in mm. terms of that platform and how flammable it is, how, how do you deal with that? It depends on my general mood in life, to be fair. It, sometimes I'm all right with it. Sometimes it's water off a duck's back. You know, sometimes I just sort of think, well, it's part and parcel of it. If there are things going on in my personal life that are maybe a little bit more combustible, it tends to impact my mood in the way that I will react to certain things. But, you know... But, I, not, but not the other way around? No. I mean, I would say that Twitter is... It's a complicated place because people go there often, from my experience at least, they're waiting for a bus for 10 minutes. They want to almost tee off on somebody. And that, when you are the sort of wow. the conduit for it, can be quite a difficult thing to grapple with. But, I mean, we were saying just before you push record, I feel as though the international break has led to a period where people are bored and therefore more angry yes. because they're bored. Yes. And it's like the place they go to express that, but then because they haven't got the occupied nature of you know the domestic game, it has a knock-on effect in the way they... Converse. I've definitely noticed it. And, and if I can correct you briefly, I didn't push record the beautiful Finn. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to take that credit. You know, this is a big team that pushes record. So Apologies, that's, that's Finn. Finn. That does that for us. He's with us. So he's also a Crystal Palace yeah, fan, sure. as, as you are as well. But yeah, I, I, I'm getting that feeling. I sort of I went off Twitter yesterday. I was like, no, I don't need this. Mm. I, 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 and actually, you know, the podcast, I've, I've had some really lovely comments recently from people actually about the podcast and how they've really enjoyed it. And I, I did this when we first started doing the podcast. So I haven't done it really enough. I do want to just have a quick chat with you guys and just to say, because I was feeling a bit funny the last couple of days, if I'm honest. Mm. And I remember often I kind of think about um, everyone else like, or, or my audience when that kind of happens. Because I, when I start to sort of pop out of it, um, and I'm sure that will kind of uh, that will ring true for a lot of people, you then go, oh, okay, I've got through that. And the sort of agginess of, of Twitter and, and everyone over the international break... I found really, really interesting because I guess they haven't got that maybe a distraction to hang on to, a purpose to hang on to. But just to say, guys, for everyone who does sort of watch my stuff and kind of thinks that, um, I don't know, that they might be going through something and that everything's all right for everyone all the time. Um, I'm fully aware of how like lucky I am here to be sat here right now being able to do this as my job. But even I myself, I'm sort of like, yeah, I've had a tricky couple of days i found it really funny and so if you are feeling that way as well make sure you're sort of chatting to someone um and know that you've got a safe space here where we're always going to just have fun and i won't be teeing off on anyone um 
because yeah, it's just not it's not necessary. But I hope everyone is okay. I did want to say that because I think initially with the podcast we wanted I wanted it to be quite personal and an opportunity for me to chat to you guys, and uh, we've kind of lost that a little bit just because we've been having great conversations. So. Uh, it is what it is but yeah thank you everyone who does listen to this podcast and um it does help me sort of bubble up uh, when when i have those days um let's let's continue on this thread because i think there's some we've got some ripple effects in terms of um, transfers that haven't occurred and obviously we'll talk about football in huge detail but with it being the international break one thing i have noticed this cycle of sort of october november september you know these international breaks mm-hmm. and people just generally don't like them um, I saw your tweet actually. Yeah. It's good. It's funny. But the, so, are you a sort of? Do you despise the international break? So, or I, do you like it? I actually talked about this on my podcast this morning because there was one guy who said something along the lines of, "Oh yeah, but you'll be painting your face and wearing, you know, putting flags on your car when the Euros come around." But I won't. Like, <laughs> I have an in, an increased level of care for England at major tournaments. Right. But I, I've said this before: if Palace were to win an FA Cup, I would take that a million times of course. over England winning a World Cup. Right. But some people, understandably, given their perspective, don't really chime with that. But I've never been any other way. Mm-hmm. That, that's the way that I view my football experience because Palace is the lifeblood of what I do. I go, you know, every home game, as many away games as I can. I think about it every single day of my life. England is almost like a, a collective experience. And because of the frequency of these international breaks, I, I tweeted that out and within 30 seconds, someone went, it happens every year, mate. And I'm like, yeah, I appreciate that. But I've just used the word discovered wrongly and now you're like on it. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah I should have just back. gone a reminder that because it does, it interrupts the, the sort of flow from my perspective. See, I enjoy the break. <laughs> Personally, I'm absolutely fine with the break. Like the sort of, you know, they're going, okay, new video, new video. Oh God, I've got to catch up on this and that. I can mm. actually just kind of take my foot off it for a second. I think people get really angry because it's, and there's always the, one, the sort of, the conversation doesn't feel strong enough, right? And so what occurs, and you see it again, is, is, is Gareth Southgate the man to yeah. take us forward? Let's pick that apart. Yeah, let's pick that apart again, right? But I think the thing, thing that people are struggling with is it's the angst of, Knowing that the main event is miles away, yeah, yeah. So someone did actually a lack say of acceptance me, of that. Someone said to me yesterday, and I, I think it's a great idea. It would never get signed off, but if they had all of the qualifiers in like a six-week spell, I would be happier with that because it's almost like a mini tournament right. in itself, and then you can, it's like you can put it in a box. Yeah, but, but I guess it I guess it depends who you're playing and how good your yeah. teams are as well. Because I think that's the thing with qualifiers as well. Like qualifiers have got. So if you're a Scotland fan or a Wales fan, you know, the competition is far more, you yeah, know, hotly. Jeopardy. Yeah, there's, that's it. There's a, so much more jeopardy there. For England fans, it's, well, we'll be, we'll be fine. Box, We're going to get yeah. there. You know, it would be an utter disaster if that did occur. But I tell you what, that last game of that qualifying group, you'd be up for it and you'd be watching it, yeah. you know, if that was the case. So I kind of just like, I'm just like, I'm not bothered. Like... As in, don't worry about it. Like, no, I know what you mean. <laughs> you know but, I mean? but then that in itself, I think because the Premier League is this product, and I'm not obviously just speaking about the Premier League, you've got the Championship and the whole sort of EFL structure, even though League One and Two takes place during the international break anyway. Mm. But people are so deeply embedded in their club narratives that it feels like genuine jeopardy every week because yeah. it gets built up by the media and there's so much conversation. I do think as well, there is and a, they're incredibly competitive leagues as exactly. well. You've got to remember the competition is good. And th- and that's the key, you see, because we've reached a point now as, as football fans in this country where domestically 
you've got an endless supply of, of different narratives that are spinning constantly. Yes, and then sure. the international break comes and it's like... Mm. And then everyone's sort of... It's like when... You remember when Twitter had the 600 tweet limit a day? Mm. People didn't really realise, the people that are on Twitter all the time, how much they just doom scrolled through their phones. Right. And then when you haven't got it anymore, it's like you've taken away a drug. Yeah. And I think that's what the pausing of domestic football sort of does. Ah, interesting. Okay. So it's, yeah, it's the it's the loss of the drug of I think so. the constant soap opera of it all. Because you so, can go on your phone and see a new thing kicking off every I think it's good for us. It probably I think is it's good. good. For, I think it's great but for so us. But so is a detox from drugs. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, but it's not, not as much fun, I've been told. <laughs> Never had to do that myself. Um, let's talk about Harry Maguire. Because here's a ripple effect for you. Not being able to sell Harry Maguire over the summer will hold huge implications for Man United over the long term. Harry Maguire is one of Man United's highest earners and was a good asset for the club this summer in terms of being a sellable one. The transfer of Harry Maguire and or Scott McTominay, he was killing it for Scotland, by the way, was supposed to be the financial catalyst that enabled the move for Amrabat to be made. But with Maguire not leaving, it saw Amrabat join on a loan, 8 million loan fee, although it's it's he will go. Whilst Amrabat's arrival may be looked at as a positive for Man United, it's not as straightforward as that. Acquiring on loan is simply papering over the cracks. These FFP issues don't seem to be going away that easily. And the worst thing is they'll likely still sell Maguire in the next transfer window. But by then he'll only have one year left as it stands on his current deal. Man United do have the option to extend it by a year. But that seems stupid <laughs> if they want to sell him. So if they st- extend his contract... His value will then be higher, but it also makes him more expensive for any potential buyers, making it hard, harder for him to be sold. Catch-22. So failing to sell Maguire in this last window will be a financial crutch on Manchester United in January and quite possibly in the summer as well. How do you feel about... Let's go back a bit and we'll get back to Man United because obviously, as I say, you know, England, international break, all that stuff. How do you feel about Harry Maguire and his, you know, occupancy within the England squad? I think it's difficult because on a surface level, I think everyone can agree that he doesn't justify his selection in the eleven because of the fact that he isn't playing regularly, because he hasn't been in what you would consider to be good form when he has played for Manchester United. However, I do understand from Gareth Southgate's perspective that he has not favourites, but he has trusted lieutenants that he has been through things with. And maybe, you know, that is an Achilles heel of his that will, you know, be used as a stick to beat him forevermore. I mean, obviously I had a vested interest when England last played because Mark Gay started and I thought we did extremely well. But even the narrative that surrounded the goal that Ukraine scored because Harry Maguire's drifted into where Mark was and it was like, oh, you're marking Mark Gay rather than... It just feels like... An unnecessary distraction for England that could be easily solved were he to put him back on the bench. So this is this is really interesting, right? The distraction element of it. Because I think if you zoom out, because the same goes with Jordan Henderson, who we should touch on when we're talking about England here. Because both of them being in the squad and both being in the starting lineup, sometimes I think Southgate zooms out and goes, okay, what will I need to tackle at some point? I think he's missed the point with this on this occasion because I think even if you give him two games now, two games in the next break, it's four games. <laughs> it's not that's not enough to go. Well, he's good to go and he's he's fit and firing, and you're still only in January when the transfer window opens anyway. So the Maguire thing, 
I don't really understand because I know they still want to navigate the qualifiers, but as we've alluded to, they should be pretty comfortable in terms of getting that done. Obviously, they've got the draw against Ukraine. You know, football's football. Like sometimes it can be a bit creaky, and you'll you'll, you'll have bad results. And I get that. But with Maguire, I feel like there was there's an opportunity to give players that don't have the same experience that level of experience and understanding. And we are recording this before the England Scotland game. I'm fascinated to see the lineup and see how how much he kind of explores when it comes to that. Because what would be your if so? This is actually good. This is a good exercise. If you were Gareth Southgate, it's a friendly, but it's 150, you know, 150 anniversary. It's England Scotland. What team do you play? Do you experiment or do you play your best team? And therefore, if you're going to do that, does that have Harry Maguire in it? I think, strangely, if we'd have cruised past the Ukraine, my thinking might have been slightly different. But I feel like, even though it is a friendly, the narrative that surrounds Scotland at the moment, you know, Steve Clark's gone flying. And they will see it as an opportunity to measure whether or not they've sort of made up a bit of ground on us. And obviously, it's not a straightforward fixture at any point because England, friendly, Scotland is, is, is England-Scotland. Yeah. But at the same time, if you do go with what you consider to be your first choice 11 in a friendly, when you have the opportunity to experiment, it does, I don't know, it sort of lowers the, the level of, of trust I have in, in the way that we are going about this in a long-term process. But then that also has to be factored in with the perspective that Gareth Southgate is leaving at the end of this tournament cycle anyway. So there are multiple narratives. That has he, you, said, he said that? I'm pretty he? sure he is going, yeah, because there's all sorts of different reports linking in with Palace once right. Roy Hodgson's contract, because obviously he's gone for our academy and yeah. he gets on well with Steve Parrish. That's another conversation entirely. But it, it's just difficult because I don't think he... So what would you do? This is what I mean, because I think everyone goes, oh, Gareth this, Gareth that. What would you do? Tonight, yeah. I would pair John Stones with Mark Gay. Right. Personally, because I feel as though it's it's an opportunity to lay a marker down, albeit in a friendly. But John Stones is John Stones is missing. Oh, is John he not Stones there? Out, yeah. Well, in which case, it's so a very very. You've got Colwell. You've got Dunk. You could play instead. Don't. I mean, I, I, can't, as well. I can't answer the Lewis Dunk question with, with any degree <laughs> okay. of impartiality. Understood. I, I, it's such a. It, don't get me wrong. Do you experiment? Do you go? Probably. For it? Yeah. I wouldn't nail it down to one individual with Mark. But I would experiment. Okay. And so not say play you Maguire. experiment it, experiment in this game. You then lose this game to Scotland, and you've just drawn to Ukraine, and that's the rub. You see. So this this is kind of my point: is that it also doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't fucking matter. <laughs> like it does because it's Scotland, right? And yeah, don't England, say that on Twitter. Yeah, I hear that. Like oh, I'm half Scottish, half English, but like, so I, I, the draw works for me. But like the it doesn't matter. But I, that's what I mean. I think the angst is is pointless. Well, even the Ukraine game, it's a draw. Like, it's not the end of the... We're still going to qualify. And then they're not utter trash. But like, the, other, but the problem, the the problem is, is that you've got this narrative that he's holding us back from playing the free-flying football. Sure. Uh, someone said it to me the other day. I've almost forgotten what being England fan is like pre-Gareth Southgate. The uh, consistency that he has actually brought to our game is almost like a double-edged sword. But it's just, it's the boredom of it. Mm. So it leads, it's, it's like you say, I'm bored. I'm going to go on Twitter. I'm going to find something to be angry about. Yeah. That's what this is. Whereas I'm saying, just relax. Like, we're going to qualify. We're going to be fine. And then when it gets to the tournament, we, we have no idea what the form is or the injury no. record will be. What I will say, the Jordan Henderson thing, I do not understand. No, neither do I. I do not understand. So again, in terms of the zooming out, 
I wonder if Southgate's looked at this and gone, at some stage, I could well want him in the squad, right? He's liked Connor Cody in the squad previously, despite not really being, you know, a justified pick, right? He's wanted those kind of guys, those leaders. And, you know, I saw Jordan Henderson in the World Cup and he was frighteningly good. And he was great in that midfield three, Bellingham and Declan Rice in that tournament. However, I feel like Southgate's got this one out the way in a boring international break so that you guys have your little conversation about it. But it's so far away, a bit like changes to the Champions League structure or things like that. If you do it far enough away, there's nothing you can actually do. And that Jordan Henderson conversation, if he comes in a squad in March, Mm. then everyone's going, how could you do this? Whereas him doing it now actually shows an element of foresight where we'll have a chat about it now and then we'll never bring it up again, really, if we're honest. And in terms of like owning the narrative of your squad. That's where sort of he's got one right and one wrong for me. Maguire, is just, you just don't need him in there. You just don't need him in there. Even if you're going to put him in the squad, you don't need to play him right now. Jordan Henderson, I don't understand why he's in there when, again, you know, there are, you're not learning anything about Jordan Henderson now. I also feel as though it creates more hysteria than you need. Like, because of the whole... Saudi move because of his previous associations with the LGBTQ plus side of things it's it's an unnecessary sideshow which puts the the narrative back in a case of like why is he there mm. if if you just look at it from a purely footballing perspective he's a footballer in the autumn of his career who's moved to a league which is nowhere near as as competitive from week to week as the Premier League obviously that's a conversation that could change over the next few years but I just don't really see the the sort of future planning once again also in terms of like say that savviness that I've just spoken about in terms of okay there's going to be discourse around this let's get it out the way Um, and I'm not trying to sort of you know uh, take away the issues that are there I'm just saying you know if you're Gareth Southgate how do you navigate this because you want Jordan Henson to be part of your squad you still don't need to start him I don't know why he started him against Ukraine there's other players that you could kind of bring in and I, I guess the one thing is that you've got to be careful about being arrogant and going well it's England we'll be fine but I think you know the the depth of quality in that squad is there for all to see. In that particular position as well. And so again, you're not... If you'd had him and brought him on for the last 20 minutes to shut down the game because you're 2-0 up or whatever it is, like he, he has... Well, he's played for England now and it's done kind of mm-hmm. thing. But to sort of start him, I, I didn't really uh, understand that at all. But overall, again, I'm quite... The sort of um, should should he be sacked, should he not be sacked... I'm not going to have that conversation anymore. I'm not doing it anymore. It doesn't need to happen. And I think actually you kind of, he will be the manager for the tournament. Mm -hmm. So, and I think the people that have decided he's not up to it have made their, you know, call with that. And that's it. It's the end. They, they couldn't change their mind if they wanted to, unless he wins the Euros. And I think a fair expectation for England is semi-finals minimum, right? It has and to I be the hope that, that we can go and win it. I mean, yeah. I think he, if you look at our tournament performances, the previous Euros, penalty shootout away, you know, the World Cup, we all know what happened with Harry Kane's penalty against France. And mm. I, it's weird because the, the general vibe of Gareth Southgate is very much like keep things on an even keel, middle manager, you know, manage up well, manage down well. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, our performances at summer tournaments, albeit, Qatar was in the winter has been solid 
compare the, to his direct counterparts, whether it's Sven, whether it's Fabio Capello, you can't really argue with the way that we performed, but he sort of made a rod for his own back because people will just go, but the quality of the squad is such that he should be doing it anyway, but we don't know how anyone else would have performed. Yeah, and again, these games matter somewhat, and also you can't actually get a real answer of if he's up to it or not. Look, if he finishes his managerial reign, and it does come down to this tournament now, and he hasn't won a tournament, I think he can walk away 80% happy, 20% disappointed. Probably. But I think the black and whiteness of it is just... It's a bit of a nonsense. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Harry Maguire and the implications on Man United. I mean, El Ghazi being linked with Man United. It's got, it screams... Um, Sort of previous Man United transfers where who was it? Was it Agarlo? Was that his name? The Watford lad? Odi and Agarlo. Odi and they sort of brought in yeah, or Veg Horse last year. It's a similar sort of predicament that they've got themselves into uh, uh, Manchester United. What would you do if you were Harry Maguire? Would you just wait out till next summer? Or like, how does this get resolved in a way that works for everyone? I didn't really understand. And obviously I don't know the specific dynamics of why that potential move to West Ham broke down. But I felt Wages, yeah, but, right? so, but I felt as though and I appreciate and I thought about this before coming in for the podcast this morning. I appreciate there are completely different stratospheres. But Rob Holding left Arsenal to come to Crystal Palace. Yeah. Right? Rob Holding is if you talk to Arsenal fans, someone that their supporter base have a great deal of affection for, but I think there was a acceptance that he was never going to be a starter for them. Yeah. And if you look at his place within the structure at Palace, it's quite clear that he's below Anderson and Gay, but he is closer to getting games if one of them gets suspended or injured. Sure. For me, I looked at Harry Maguire's situation and I thought, well, you're not getting a game at Man United. Your race is run in terms of your long-term potential to be a, a key fixture of their squad. Why not go and play for West Ham? Because I feel as though his game under David Moyes would be perfect. Yeah, so I totally agree. I, I understand the wages element, but for me... It just seemed a little bit short-sighted of him. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I guess what do you, what do you want? You know, uh, do you want to just safeguard the bag? Apparently, he's on 190 a week <laughs> till 2025. But he'd probably be on 90 to 100 at West Ham. That's true. It's not like he's going to be on a pittance. No, I, no, I, I get that. But I think value, your your understanding of value changes. You know, when you sort of hit these heights that he's he's obviously hit. But to have that contract till twenty twenty five, that is mm. still quite a long run. It that's another pretty nightmarish decision by Manchester United to give him that contract. So if you've got as long to run as it has, that's where he's struggling a little bit, especially if. He's going to go to West Ham where he's probably going to play or certain, like you say, he's in the mix in the right? more so. Yeah, whereas he's definitely not starting for Manchester United at the moment. And so I think you're right. And I think the, the thing that is a bit short sighted from him 
is the fact that if he is playing week in, week out for West Ham, he will start, I think, for England in the Euros next year. Or because... have a far greater chance of doing it without the pushback. Right. Exactly. Because yeah, there's two rows of this guy. You know, there's if Maguire has not left Manchester United come May, He's in the wilderness. you can't put him in the squad, can you? Well, I wouldn't put it past him, but it wouldn't make PR sense in any way. Yeah. You know. Man United are in a, such a funny position now. Like it's I've been if we're honest, it's been an absolute disaster of a start of the season for them in terms of obviously the Anthony thing, um the Sancho thing. Greenwood. The Greenwood thing. There was that thing with a guy who rocked up at one of their games who shouldn't have been there the other day as well. There's just so many different things going wrong. The other injuries club. that they you know, Varane being out, lots of players being out. <sighs> it almost comes to a point where you know, the Harry Maguire situation is one that I feel two or three years ago might have dominated the headlines more if there wasn't so much other stuff going on with Manchester United that sort of push it down the pecking order. Mm. It's a difficult one. How do you think they'll get on between now and the rest of the season? Because I think sometimes you kind of you start to see it crystallise, like who's going to have a struggle this year? You know, with the personnel that they have out right now, it's, it's going to be really tough for them. Champions League games coming as well. I, I think... The Jaden Sancho discourse is quite a difficult one because I think there are a fair few Manchester United fans who feel as though he is not representing the club in the way they would like him to. I think it's still his pinned tweet, which is, in a lot of people's minds, unacceptable because of all the other stuff going on in the club. But to me, it's just symptomatic of the entire chaos that is going on behind the scenes. And whether or not... I mean, there was that whole narrative that Eric Ten Hag was the sort of iron-willed leader that was the right man to take them in a new direction but it feels as though he's losing his grip on that particular view at the moment and you know I, I look at teams across that sort of top six or seven I don't think it's an archetypal big six anymore you know you've got Brighton pushing the boundaries you've got Newcastle as a disruptor you've got Spurs with no European football and Postacoglu there you've got Villa there are so many different threats to Manchester United finishing in the top four or five I just don't think it's a guarantee anymore I did it. Uh, I did it yesterday. I did my final predictions, and I was sort of say with Brighton. I was looking at. Them, I know you won't like this, but like, I was sort of going, "Why am I not putting Brighton above Man United?" The only reason is because they're called Brighton. Yeah, history, history, and I think that's also something. Sometimes it's like the baseline of a club like Man United. It um, it sort of holds on mm. uh, because of almost like the sort of fear and pressure of the fact that you are Manchester United. So the depths will only get so deep because you have enough calibre there and, and spotlight there to kind of it's almost like bounce you out of it. But I just think that the sort of lack of bodies there at Man United is is the biggest concern. Like, you know, obviously Mason Mount being out, Johnny Evans having to play recently. Uh, Shaw out is a crucial player for them. Even I'm just looking at now, even players like Kobe Mayno, who's on his way back, I think. Mason Mount might have to play on that right wing because I guess with the Sancho thing mm. you know obviously Greenwood has gone Anthony has gone you've got Garnacho can you know play both sides I, I would imagine but you ideally wants to be on the left hand side in terms of that sort of uh, iron will if that's even the right phrase to sort of be ruthless and go these are our standards you're not behaving in the right fashion and how it's blown up can you bring Jaden Fa- Sancho back into the fold after what's occurred I don't think so. I, I don't see a it's scenario... really short on numbers here. I don't see a scenario where they can because the Manchester United fan base are so split over whether or not he has a valid point. Mm. You know, you're creating 
mini fires all over the place for yourselves alongside fires that are out of control and raging in the corner that you didn't even start. It's just such a difficult position for them to be in. And not having the funds to fix it. You know, that's kind of part of this problem. And that's why the the Harry Maguire, the inability to pay him off or also, you know, make sure that he does go has put them in such a, such a, you know, conundrum here. You you know, we've got like Scott McTominay has not obviously been involved that much. Amrabat, I can't figure out what's the latest in terms of injury. Not, I've got Donny Van Der Beek on this screen that I'm looking at right now. It's still, it's all over the the place for Man United, and it's amazing how quickly kind of that squad has unravelled for me. You've still got a lot of players there that aren't top four players, really. If I'm honest, uh, let's move on because I'm sure Man United fans are incredibly depressed after that. But normally I'm wrong. <laughs> Normally I'm wrong. That's what there I is there is a part of me as well which makes me feel like almost you can criticise your own family but you can't criticise others. Manchester United fans themselves can say we're probably yeah, finished we're outside the top yeah, six. Yeah. Don't use if it. you say it on a yeah. video, you'll probably get caned. I think the know. thing is, and what could be a saving grace is Hoyland I am excited about. Mm. Casemiro as an individual is a player that you know will bend, won't break. Bruno Fernandes and Rashford last year really stepped up to the plate and can do so again. I think Rashford's still awesome. I think what's disappointing for Man United is in terms of that movement and the sort of four stages of getting to becoming a, a Man City or an Arsenal or maybe a Liverpool if, if they uh, Chris, you know if they pull into focus in the right way over the next few weeks. That's the that's the frustrating thing for Man United fans. I would imagine is that each time you kind of think they're making a step towards it, things get in the way and. And it feels like it's happening again. Uh, let's move on to Liverpool. So was Liverpool's failed attempt to sign Moises Caicedo a bullet dodge? Off the top of your head, thoughts? Um, I read it. Read I mean, I don't. I don't want to poo-poo Moises Caicedo's potential effectiveness for Chelsea, and I do believe that Chelsea, in and of themselves, are a unique case because of their inability to get over the line in seemingly any match at the moment. But I do believe that I, I feel as though the defensive midfield position this summer has been the flavour of the month in terms of the costs and the the hype around certain individuals. And that Moises Casido transfer saga with the amount of money Chelsea ended up paying with the bid that came in from Liverpool out of nowhere, it created a narrative that was sort of a storm in a teacup, which led to a point where Chelsea felt they had to go out and spend that much money even if they didn't really want to. Mm. So would he have worked better in a Jurgen Klopp system long-term? Possibly. Do I think he was worth that amount of money? No. Am I giving all the credit in the world to Brighton for standing firm and getting it? Yes. Okay. So Liverpool, of course, made a £110 million uh, bid for Moises Casado, which would have made him the most expensive Premier League signing of all time. But of course, he still did become this, but with Chelsea instead. But his time at Chelsea hasn't gone off to the best of starts. Mistakes against uh, West Ham and Forest, costing his team goals. Meanwhile, Brighton sits sixth in the table during the international break and are £110 million richer. But Liverpool have also benefited from this because they've inadvertently signed Endo and Gravenberg. I just like to say it right now. Uh, whilst Gravenberg, I'll just do it once, Gravenberg isn't <laughs> of the same profile as Caicedo, maybe this isn't a bad thing as the signing of Gravenberg guarantees quality in different positions and gives Liverpool a lot of tactical flexibility. For instance, they could play a double pivot of McAllister and Gravenberg with Sabojlai in the 10 if they wanted to, something nobody sees coming, but also a positive byproduct of missing out on Caicedo. 
the what was amazing, I think, but in terms of that difficult start for Kaiseido, is that it feels like the sort of cauldron of both Liverpool or Chelsea. If he steps into that Liverpool ground and the style of play that I think Liverpool are going to play this year, I think, and the and the fan base in terms of what they look to represent, I think it's a really exciting time for Caicedo and one that has no fear whatsoever. I think he wants to go out there and make a huge impression. Now, I know he wants to do the exact same at Chelsea, but because of the imbalance that's there right now and the frustration that's been there for, you know, what, a season and a half now since the start of last season, he actually comes into an environment that is really not kind of helpful for him or very difficult and importantly, incredibly alien to what he's dealt with for for Brighton. Because Brighton's, a, you know, again, a quite a freeing place. It'd be interesting to see how Brighton progress over the next couple of years in terms of the expectations that the club and the fans will have, if they'll be able to kind of retain that humility. Especially with that European group they've got. It's absolute carnage, isn't it? Yeah. and But I think with how impressive they've been and the money they've been able to bring in, it'd be interesting to see how, what the effect of that is. But with Caicedo, as, as you say... I think the truth here is is interesting because we're not going to find it out yet. We can only go on what our guts. So with Endo and Gravenberg and then Caicedo, Gravenberg, I don't totally get it. I don't like, because I think new shiny thing mm. equals good Exo- generally. Exotic as well. Yes. And from big club, mm-hmm. then really exciting, right? So Endo, who I thought I was impressed with him in the game against Newcastle and Gravenberg, who I like, I've really, really liked, but I don't really understand him at Liverpool when you're trying to have McAllister. And I think that is the only way that it will work is if you have this double pivot with Endo and Gravenberg and maybe play Sabozla in front. Um, sorry, not Endo, uh, McAllister and Gravenberg. And it could free up Trent with a bit more space on that right-hand side. You've got Gravenberg who's probably got that recovery pace to help out as well. But again, Gravenberg is one that likes to sort of sort of be on the front foot and step into things. Do you feel like Liverpool have dodged a bullet there then? I think, I mean, you made the comparison yourself a minute ago, as much as it pains me, Brighton are a model of how football clubs of the middle pack should be run. And Moises Casido has sort of risen to prominence, I say gradually, but pretty meteorically, I suppose, over the last 12 months in terms of catching the eye of top clubs. Whether or not Jurgen Klopp has been at the top of his game for the last 12 months, I think his presence within the Liverpool structure and the way that he is viewed by their fan base is a huge plus in relation to the way that new players can come in and be bedded in. And that in itself at Chelsea is just not there. Because, you know, I mean, we had the conversation last time I was on the pod. I don't personally believe that Pochettino and Chelsea will ever work. I don't think it's it's oil and water as far as I'm concerned. And it doesn't matter how much they try just don't see the fan base ever buying into what Pochettino is. And there can be collateral damage all over the place with that. And potentially Moises Casino is that because of the price tag and because of the congested nature of their squad. It will probably take Pochettino the best part of 18 months to actually work out exactly how he wants that squad to be. Yeah. And by that point, his stock could have fallen so far because he's come in with this huge expectation because of the money on him that he's just, you know, left strewn somewhere else other than the starting 11 that's i think that the thing that i didn't see but i'm now starting to see is the sort of 
what are you hanging on to? Mm. Like, and when I look at Chelsea in terms of what you can hang on to, and so things that you can hang on to, an incredibly clear vision of how you play from the manager. Mm-hmm. That's one, right? And then you can often talk about the spine of a team or a certain, at least you're looking for five, six players, four at minimum that you can go, boom, 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 boom. These guys here every single week. On pitch leaders. On the pitch leaders. They will take, you know, the problem solving on their own back. And so when you look at Chelsea and the best 11, and again, look at any great team and how there's often an 11 of players that you can trust. For example, you know, for all the critique that Trent has, or Robertson has, more so Trent, right? They're fit all the time, Mm -hmm. all the time. With this Chelsea team, the the one name I, I keep going back to, and I think they're looking for Caicedo to be that guy at some point, which is a step up for him. The only name I can go to is Thiago Silva. Yeah, I was going to say that. Because Reese James, captain, he's not fit. No. Someone said it the other day on Twitter because he got announced as captain and someone yeah. went, who's going to be captain the other 25 games? Yeah, and which it sounds harsh. <laughs> it sounds harsh, but you, you couldn't really argue with that point. That's it. So, so in terms of the things to hold on to, uh, to allow Pochettino to be successful, mm. is there an outrageously clear vision in terms of how he wants to play? I'm not sure there is. Is there a clear understanding of who your best 11 is? No. Is there a clear understanding of at least five or six players that you can kind of build around? Not yet. And even if you do go, okay, it's going to be Nicholas Jackson, it's going to be Caicedo... Uh, Enzo Fernandez, it's going to be Tiago Silva. Tiago yeah. Silva. Then you're going the players around. You're not going to go. It's not Sanchez, is it? It's not. And it maybe you could maybe Chilwell's one of these players, but really you've actually got you know you've got a left back playing left wing slash left wing back, and that's all fine if it's all flowing within a system. But I'm just struggling to see how that really embeds in time in such a competitive league for Chelsea to get where they want to be, certainly this season. And then, therefore, will there be the patience no. to, to I, allow them to get where they want to be? I mean, I look at it and I feel like, and it, it sort of touches upon what we said last time I was here, Pochettino will bend his ways to be more Chelsea-centric than he previously has been in the media, in his proclamations about what he wants, because he understands that there are certain aspects to his previous time at Spurs, I think, that will not chime with the way that Chelsea fans want a Chelsea manager to be. And if you compare and contrast that to Jurgen Klopp... And so, do you, sorry, just to explain that, do you mean, you know, being that little bit more bullish? Maybe? Abrasive. Yeah. Because he's not naturally abrasive, and right. it's what gets Chelsea fans ticking. Mm. Whereas when you look at Jurgen Klopp, he is for his potential faults and whether or not he has tactical blind spots, he completely embodies that football club. So there is an element of trust if he brings a player in like Endo. You know, there were plenty of Liverpool fans that were like, where's this come from? But they get on board with it. They yeah. get on board the hype train. They they buy into what the manager wants from them. And that has a ripple effect in terms of their rest of their season. Whereas I just don't think Pochettino is going to have an authentic way of being because he doesn't know how to be yet. Mm. It may well be in three or four years' time we look back and think, well, he did work it out. But I just can't see it. Well, I think because he's, he's planted... I mean, Todd Bowley's essentially planted a load of seeds. Mm-hmm. And then there's one really old flower. Tiago <laughs> Silva is kind of, you know, there. The, the big sunflower. That's yeah, yeah, exactly. But you're sort of like, you know, he's starting to get a bit frayed around the edges. Knowing who... I guess, look, we're not there with them all the time. I, I would love to know... If, guys, Chelsea fans, if you're listening, you know... 
let me know on Twitter who are your four. Mm. Like who? I, I would imagine it's. I would imagine it's the guys in terms of those seeds. It's the costly seeds. It's Mudrick, although I think he's maybe regretting that somewhat. But we'll see. I think. But if you think of the money that's spent, because that was what I thought was uh, fascinating about the strategy. As much as you've got this massive number, you've also got a lot of twenty-five mils, and then you've got. Uh, Fernandez, you've got Caicedo, you've got Mudrick. I think that's about it. Maybe I'm, 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 there's someone I'm missing. Those are the three like hundred mil, eighty, whatever it was. The sure things in terms the of sure the sure things speed. exactly. So it, it needs to be those three. But in terms of having an environment of that has no fear, mm. it's there's a disconnect here between oh look, give me it's okay, give him a chance, give him a chance with competition because it's quite a, there's quite a lot of players there and well hang on we spent a lot of, like this, these big numbers that's the thing that they're gonna have to really deal with i honestly believe i mean what are we we've got a month until the next international break as far as i remember chelsea have picked up wins against luton and afc wimbledon you know it's not a good place for them at the moment mm. and you know the last campaign was poor i think if they are still in a position in a month's time where they are not clicking the chelsea fan base understandably, for me, we'll be thinking this isn't going to work, just yeah. like it didn't work with Grand Park. The next four games are huge. Bournemouth away, that, oh, okay. Aston Villa at home, Fulham away, Burnley away, and then you've got Arsenal at home after that. Those four on paper all should Ca- be winnable. Come on. They spent a billion. This but is it- what I mean. So, And I'm being unfair in saying that, but that's kind of what I'm talking about, that, that disconnect of like, Come on, you've spent a billion quid here. You need to go and pump these teams. And I do it's also, I do also believe that you've got a section of their fan base, and this is more so pronounced in the online era. Fan bases now, for me, are, are split. You've got your everyday Chelsea fan in the street that sees the number, they read the newspapers, they expect results, right? mm. and they will look at those four games and think we should be winning them all three nil, right? And you will have another section of Chelsea fans online that are more long-term thinking, but they will get shouted over by the general discourse that will exist if they don't pick up at least nine points from those four games. And I'm just not sure they will. And then after that, you've got Arsenal, Brentford, Tottenham. Blimey. I mean, is that Brentford away? At home. Uh, well, to be fair, that doesn't actually matter these days. But it's just such a tough league, you know. I think that's the thing for them. So, it's, it's on Pochettino, right? Yeah. Now's the time, right? He's got to fix it now. Well, yeah, but I, I've, I've been consistent in this. There's not many things that I will nail my colours to the mast with, but I just do not see a scenario where Pochettino is a long-term success at Chelsea. Because I don't think anyone really can be these days. Oh, someone's going to need to be at some point, right? Yeah. Maybe it's Nicholas Jackson. Do you know what Maybe I mean? Maybe the player manager. Like, someone's got to be, someone has to be successful there at some point. Because Is there a scenario where Todd Bowley gets bored? Is there a scenario that that Chelsea can have another twenty years like this and not not win anything? Like what happens? I don't know. I, the the problem I have with it now is that I mean I'm thirty four. I lived through Manchester United dominance for most of my childhood. Then Chelsea in two thousand and three went and it became different. Now you've got clubs like Brighton and Brentford doing their own thing. You've got Villa backed by mad amounts of money and a genuinely good coach. You've got Newcastle disrupting. It's such a, a more busy picture. Mm. And I just don't think that... Because of financial fair play as well, even if Chelsea have, you know, massaged those numbers, yeah. 
it's just not as straightforward as you spend a billion quid, you get success. Do you think, yeah, I totally agree with you. And it feels like that sort of line of, let's so let's go back in time, Blackburn and mm-hmm. Man United and the rest, because Blackburn spent so much money back then. Then it was... Then it was sort of it was Arsenal probably, United. It was Arsenal 90s. United. I guess, I guess at that point, no one was spending too much. Man United spent enough for sure, but not to this these these levels. Chelsea relative, came, yeah. yeah. Chelsea came in, like blew everyone out of the water, right? Then Man City came in, but Chelsea was still there as well. Man United was still there as well, and I think that line of of the amount of clubs there is just getting lower and lower and lower. So now it's now it's the it's the Luton, Sheffield United, the teams coming up from the championship. Mm-hmm. Whereas previously, you felt like you had a better chance of going up and staying up. And now, it, it, that's where the line is. It's getting really hard. So for me, even though they are in a completely different stratosphere, I feel as though Brentford are actually the club that are the most interesting disruptor because they have a small ground, they have a small but loyal fan base, admittedly. But the way that they have gone about their business, they are in no one's chat when it comes to the start of the season relegation candidates. No one is having Brentford going down before a ball is kicked. And that's because of the innovative way that they've gone about their business since they, well, not just since they've come up through their entire, you know, rise through the divisions. And that in itself makes the Premier League such a difficult thing to predict now. Because Brentford, I mean, we just said it, they could go to Chelsea and beat them on their own pitch easily. Yeah. It wouldn't be a surprise to me at all. It's wild. It's absolutely wild, and it kind of just about gives you enough hope. But you've got to be, you've got to be smart mm. for twenty years. Well, I mean, because you can't do what Abramovich did anymore. Yeah, because it's too congested. Yeah, there's too many teams. It's too blocked, shall we say? It's almost like we set listen- that up. <laughs> You're listening to the Revel Effect. We'll be back after this. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Okay, Kalinia. His failed transfer to Bayern makes them more likely to win the Champions League. Paulinho's move to Bayern Munich fell through at the final hurdle, despite the player already having done his medical tests and all the media stuff surrounding the transfer. I'd love to see that. But because Fulham couldn't get a suitable replacement, it meant that they never sanctioned the move to be completed, despite granting him permission to travel to Munich. Despite this, it has now been revealed that Paulinho's conduct and maturity around the situation and has impressed Bayern and means they'll likely move for him again in January. The reason that this makes them more likely to win the Champions League is that Polina will be coming into it slightly fresher than most of the Bayern squad, although this will be off the back of uh, the Christmas period. (laughs) Um, And the Bayern uh, squad will play a lot of matches in the first half of the season, whereas uh, Fulham only really focus on the Premier League. 
This means that playing Saturday and Tuesday every week for the second half of the season will be possible for Polina due to having a lighter run of fixtures over the first half of the season. And let's face it, Bayern don't need him to win the Bundesliga. So he will arguably be coming in to make a difference in the Champions League knockouts. Kai, producer Kai, I'm not having it. We're allowed to do this. We're allowed to, I'm not having. I'm not having it. First of all, Fulham and any team will play loads of games over the Christmas period. I guess you'll have a bit of time after that. And in Germany, they all also have a winter break, don't they? And don't we have a winter break now as well? Yeah, in January. So utter, utter pish, guy. <laughs> Normally, such such quality, such creative thinking. But no, not not this week. Poor from you. Uh, He's, he's behaved himself, which is interesting, and that's that'll be enough to kind of get the, get it over the line uh, down the road. How are you feeling? I want to talk about Bayern, and I want to talk about Fulham, and generally, actually, the teams in the sort of Crystal Palace zone, shall we call it? Um, let's start off with Polina and Bayern, or not Bayern, really. And let's talk about Harry Kane. How are you feeling about that? Like, I don't think we've caught up since uh, since it, it it's you know it's finally done. There's been a few. There's a few players knocking about abroad. Your boy are. Zaha as well. Well, there's another conversation entirely. But it, in relation to Harry Kane, there was one clip of him dressed up in lederhosen, eating. Just some, say no, don't you? Eating you just some go no native <laughs> Munich cuisine. Sure. And I said on Twitter, it had very much the feel of like a soap star on ITV at past eight on a Wednesday night. <laughs> I'll do anything. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just, don't get me wrong, fair play to him. He's adapting, he's got, although for some reason, I saw the other day that he hasn't even downloaded Duolingo, which to me is genuinely shocking because you're there for two, three weeks. You'd want to be able to order a coffee or something. Right. But I mean, they all speak English, just the thing. But do they? Yeah, do generally. They? Well, they would yeah. to him, I suppose. Yeah. But I just generally... I was quite big on the whole. And I, are you are you starting off a Gareth Bale's sort of style agenda on no. Harry Kane going to a, you know a big club across the seas wanting to play golf and not pick up the language? Is yeah. that what you're doing? He doesn't care about the language. He doesn't care about Munich. He doesn't care about the whole thing. He's just very. He's got his Skeckers deal. He's yeah. good for life. Don't, don't start me on those. I, I can I, never say it right. Is it Skechers? Skechers. Skechers. <laughs> I think I've said that as a joke once and then and now it's like, stuck in right, your okay, brain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Skeckers. But I just, I, I don't know. I I am one of those people who, and I've said this on social media many times, you are a long time retired and I understand the whole go and win things. But I also feel as though, and this is just me personally speaking, and maybe it's because I support a club that aren't expected to win things and haven't won things. If you stay at Spurs your entire career and you toil against it and you end up winning an FA Cup when you're 34, I feel as though for the rest of your life, you have more fulfilment than you would if you went to Bayern and won three titles. Obviously, the golden goose of the Champions League is the reason he is gone. And if he wins that, the ends justify the means. But I'm not sure that him going and and winning three tick box Bundesligas would eclipse the the feeling he would have and the feeling that Spurs fans would have towards him for the rest of his life were he to have stayed there for the entirety of his time as a footballer. But you miss every shot you don't take. Harry Kane knows this. <laughs> this he's is, read, he's, he's, literally read, he's read Michael Jordan's book. I, but I think that's the big thing. I, I get that. Like, if, 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 if. But I think at least with this, you've gone, well, I wanted to win the biggest, best things. Mm. And so... Okay, yes, I should win the Bundesliga, and they will win the Bundesliga. Like you know, Dortmund look terrible. Leipzig, I think, are a bit of a, an option here, but they should definitely win it, right? By like probably ten or fifteen points. Yeah, but but say say he wins three, and 
doesn't win the Champions League, but plays in a couple of semi-finals that don't really work out for him. At least I think I could live with that more so than I just sat at Tottenham. Maybe I just I know Tottenham are killing it right now, but like I just sat at Tottenham and lost a, quite a few glib finals. Like and everyone thinks I don't have the mentality to all this nonsense. Mm. I I think he's made the right decision. Like life's for living. Go explore. Go play for big teams. Go understand what that feeling is like. Like that you're still a Tottenham legend. I don't get it. Uh, the bottom the teams sorry teams in the teams in the Crystal Palace zone. I would like to know what position that is to and from. Okay, I can do that in, in your mind. I think there's bracket. I always think there's brackets in the in the Premier League, and. They, I was doing this yesterday, so I'll I'll give you my brackets. So I think you've got the initial brackets, Man City. Then you've got um, Liverpool and Arsenal in a bracket. Then you've got, uh, then you've got Tottenham, Man United, Brighton, Chelsea, and but the way they're all behaving, I'm going to chuck Villa and Newcastle in that same bracket. It's a big old bracket. It is a big bracket. But yeah, not what I expected, to be honest, at the start of it all. Then you've got West Ham are their own bracket for me. Mm, and if West Ham I, I want that. to have a great season, they could drift towards a new bracket that lives between <laughs> the positions of Newcastle, Brighton, Villa and West Ham. That could happen. Bracket could live in the three world. quarters, that one. Exactly. Then you've got, so your bracket is Brentford, Bournemouth, Palace, Forest, Fulham, Burnley. That's that's your bracket. I'll take it. I'm not sure Burnley quite deserve to be there. I think you can, depending on how it plays out, yeah. you could switch around Burnley and maybe Wolves or Everton if it goes better for mm. them than it has done so far. I'll take it though. I agree. So, of the of your bracket, who are you? Who could get out of it upwards, and who could get out of it downwards? Is it possible to say that I think we could do both, not at the same time, but depending on how. Our season goes injury wise. You're talking about Palace. You talk about any of the. No, I'm talking about no, any no of the not any of them. Palace specifically. I feel like we're a very interesting case, given the short term nature of Roy Hodgson's deal, yeah. because it seems to have given him this fresh lease of life, which we didn't see during his first permanent stay with us. Mm. I think he, and he has spoken about it publicly. The actual strength of the squad that he had first time around was nothing like this, and he has been able to come in and see the quality that Eze has, uh, Decore, Elise, Gay, Anderson, and think, well, this is this is a team I can really work with. Let's have some fun. So, you know, obviously, one swallow doesn't make a summer. Seven points from the first four games doesn't mean we're going to continue along that path. But the performances that we put in, the fact that our strikers are actually scoring goals for once makes a big difference. So I think we are an interesting side there. I think Brentford could quite easily make it out of that middle pack and trouble the European places. You know, they are a very, very solid team, particularly at home. Mm. I don't think they've lost at home for God knows how long. Um, I went to the Brentford Palace game, actually. Palace were good. Well, we were in the second half. Mm. In the first half, we couldn't get near them. But uh, again, that sort of, to me, highlights how good Roy is because we got a hold of it and we managed to get ourselves back in the game. We probably Mm. could have won it at the end. Um, I'm not 100% sold on Burnley because I don't feel as though they are playing the sort of football that you need to play as a newly promoted side, regardless of how they performed last season, to actually justify that middle pack. Mm. But then at the same time, it might just be a case of them working out a few kinks and and, and getting up and running. Um, but yeah, other than that, I would say your your bracket is pretty spot on. Where will Fulham finish? In, in a number? 
I'm going to say it's so difficult because of the potential for January and Mitrovic being gone. Can I... 12. A 12? Wow. I've done it right. Okay. Got much lower than that. Have you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's gone 20. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. They're going down. No, they're fine. Thomas Partey not getting a move away makes Arsenal a worse team. When you have Declan Rice and Thomas Partey in the same team, it makes it a difficult task to play both of them as they want to occupy similar positions on the pitch in Arteta's system. This has made play very congested early on in the season and whilst it's allowed for a lot of midfield dominance for Arsenal, this wasn't really an issue for them before because Arsenal didn't get rid of him. It meant that he started matches as an inverted right-back and became central and wanted to come in central positions. Whilst it looked clever from a tactical perspective, it did take away an element from being able to have quick tempo moves in midfield. We saw the difference against Man United, where Zinchenko started instead. And whilst he played a similar role, he's much more used to it and picks up slightly wider positions than Partey would. The reason that Zinchenko is important is that his presence allows Martellani to stay very high and very advanced, which he would do kind of anyway, but also I think it's the width more than anything. And it's a very important factor for Arsenal's attack. Are Arsenal worse because Thomas Partey hasn't left the club? And they got too many good players in there. I feel as though there's a little bit of difficult second al- album syndrome potentially creeping in. Because from my perspective, I don't think anyone had them in a title race before a ball was kicked last season. I think they overperformed dramatically. And that has reset the bar in terms of what people expect. I actually think their business this summer has been pretty solid. I think they've strengthened in the right areas. Unfortunately, with the Timber one as well. Yeah, but if that had you know not ended up the way it has in terms of the injury, it's a huge you know positive for them. I think Declan Rice scoring that goal the other day, even though it was you know a short range finish, it's still a big moment for him. It puts him off on the right foot. It gets their fans fully on board with Declan Rice as an un you know, undeniable part of their starting eleven from week to week. Mm. I don't think he's necessarily got a problem in terms of too many good players because of the fact that there is still this belief that they are the closest challengers to Manchester City, which should, in theory, keep the majority of their fringe players happier than if they were just bobbing around between fourth and sixth. I think, for me, the thing I'm always very suspicious of with Arteta is him wanting to get the team and squad to a level where he can start to sort of Team play team. with it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I've spoken about this a lot when it comes to Pep. Pep, he, he his ability to, again, we were talking about with Southgate a little bit, when you know you're really good, you can start to have a little play about uh, with it and you can kind of see if something works, knowing that you're probably going to be all right and also understand the kind of the macro, macro, macro. <laughs> the salmon. You know, yeah, the muscles, the the, the the macro level of it all, right? And the, stop laughing. The, uh, because that's what Pep's done brilliantly. And there's a part of me that looks at what he did in terms of having Partey in the team with Declan Rice. And he kind of just thought, do you know what, we're going to dominate dominate this game anyway. But I think mm. I'd, I'd quite like to give this a go just to see if it could work. I'm not convinced that he thinks that that's the best team. I also believe... I remember doing a video quite a while ago. It was when Lampard was Chelsea manager and it was about overchoice. It was this idea of overchoice. 
And so if anyone's watched Gordon Ramsay's uh, Kitchen Nightmares, when he goes into any restaurant, he'll have a look at the menu and it'll be it's too big. big. It's, it's too, too much. Big. 14 different dishes on exactly. here. Exactly. Same thing. And so you can kind of, you're just sort of keeping all this stuff here because why not? And then it leads to overchoice. And Lampard, part of his failure was that these signings had kind of come in that I'm not sure he even wanted. And he had to find a way to sort of like put it all together. Alchemy, and go, yeah. yeah. And I think this is the first occasion where Arteta has had an element of overchoice. I don't think he'll fall for it, though. I think in time he will be ruthless enough to go to do two things. One, utilize the squad in a way that that Pep does like, and be smart and go, look, guys, we're going we're gonna to play 60 games this year. Everyone's going to play 25. And Thomas Partey, I'm going to need you for all the games on a Sunday whilst Declan Bryce plays these Champions League games. And then when we get to... Uh, when we get to Christmas, Tommy Yasu, you're coming in for the next 15, 20 games. I think he's, I think he's had that much sort of tutelage that he understands exactly what he kind of needs to do. So I agree that Arsenal and Rice in the same team for me makes Arsenal worse. Mm. I don't think you'll see much of them together. I think there is probably an element as well. Well, it has to be an element of they didn't have Champions League football last year, and you cannot play that same eleven midweek, weekend, you can't do it. So you have to have a degree of tactical flexibility. And even though it's not ideal to experiment with that in games that he's had so far this season, if he doesn't do it now, then he won't have a situation where he has full trust in those players to occupy the roles they have to. And obviously the aim for them is to be able to fight on two fronts simultaneously. And in order to do that, you have to have a degree of rotation. There has to be tactical flexibility. And it's part and parcel of being in air quotes, an elite club. Mm. You know, the fact that you don't drop off when you've had a Champions League group game on a Tuesday and it comes into a game against the Chelsea on a Sunday, you need to be able to perform at an optimum level. And in order to do that, you need fresh players. So I don't blame him. Yeah. I do think there is an element of probably he doesn't want to do it, but I feel as though he, he feels he has to. I also think he was kind of intrigued to do it. Probably. If that makes sense. And uh, he has got a bit of, of sort of brownie points there. In terms of his performance as Arsenal manager over the last couple of years, yeah. he's afforded himself that leeway. Yeah, absolutely. I also think a thing that we all get a bit sort of stuck upon is, especially when you've got this amount of games, is starting games. Because hmm. you kind of go, he's got to start. And if to start, you've got five, you've got five subs. So if you utilise those five subs correctly, and obviously there's a different payoff here in terms of you know the chemistry of the team. There's no reason why you can't. You can play 60 minutes. Everyone can play 60 minutes a week. Yeah. And that's perhaps a pretty strong position to be in. You know, to a point, obviously, you can't take everyone off. But those attacking players that you need to, you know, no one really needs to be playing that much more. So having Thomas Partey, I think, overall, does strengthen the squad long term. I think it'll be interesting to see how sort of how much he rotates over the coming months. I think that's going to be... I expect him to rotate a hell of a lot, I'll be honest. You also have to factor in injuries. They're an inevitable part of it. You know, and I mean, it's, it sounds like an old managerial cliche, but everyone is needed at some point in the campaign. It doesn't matter, you know, whether you are a, a squad player. We were talking about Rob Holding. I'm sure if he'd have stayed at Arsenal, he would have got some appearances this season because yeah. even though he wasn't a player that was high up there, his squad management... You know, and injuries will crop up. So I don't think it necessarily makes them weaker at all, to be honest. Okay. If you guys haven't uh, listened to last week's podcast, uh, we had Alex from The Different Knock talking about Arsenal and he was very impressive. So make sure you go check that out. 
Did Lucas Pacadar's failed move to Man City mean that Pep and City made an uncharacteristic panic buy this summer? When Pacadar's move to Man City was first being touted, it felt like an obvious option for Man City and that his profile fitted in well with what Man City lost in Gundogan. But then came the allegations against him. Man City then go out and get Matthias Nunez from Wolves for a fee of 53 million. Would they still have bought him if they had got to Pakatar? Man City's sources claim that Nunez is a player they've been watching even before he was at Wolves and is a player that they've admired for years. But 53 million for a player wasn't really pulling up any trees at Wolves is a hell of a lot of money. I think the main thing that we're all relieved about is that our boy... Avira Eze did not make his way to Man City because I'm not sure what I, I don't know how I could have cut. I think it would have been fine. Like I, re, I still really like Grealish and Foden and Stones, but Eze was a little bit close to home for me to, to go think to Man of City. The sell-on clause that QPR would have got. Would we have got some cash out of that? Okay, well maybe let's 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 <laughs> let's talk again. Um, do you think Man City? I mean, dare we? Dare we critique Man City and their transfer business? Um, so just to touch upon the Eze element to it they as far as I know made I say formal noises towards it they were certainly keen on signing Eze but we were very clear that it would take a ridiculous offer at that stage of the window because we wouldn't have been able to go out and replace him Zaha's gone and he is crucial he's, he, he's got so much more crucial because <laughs> he's, his levels have just gone like this ever since Vieira went and Roy came back in his game has skyrocketed and I think he's really enjoying the freedom of being in that 10 and pulling strings. Being important. Yeah. yeah. And and to be honest, I look at the situation with us. He's out of contract in the summer of 2025. So if we haven't got him to sign a new deal this year and it gets to next summer, we will have to sell because we cannot have another situation like Wilf where he walks out of the building for nothing. Yeah. But like you said, I'm not sure it would have been the best move for him. I think it's odd. £53 million is a ridiculous amount of money. However... Is it these days? And that's sort of a, a strange dynamic because I feel like it's par for the course. If a player's signing for Manchester City from a Premier League club, that's sort of what you expect, which is ridiculous in and of itself. But, I mean, I'm sure they were watching him prior to his move to Wolves. He, he was someone who was doing, you know, pretty impressive things. And, you know, they will have a bank of players in their entire scouting network that is as long as you can possibly imagine. But is it a panic buyer? I'm not... I'm not sure you would ever say that with Manchester City because they've got such a strength in depth. Mm. Do they truly need him? Probably not. Yes, but perfect. I think that's exactly how I would put it as well. I don't. Will he be a superstar at Man City? No, probably not for me. Will he be of use at times? Probably. Should they held on to Cole Palmer instead? That was a strange deal. Probably. <laughs> I mean, obviously, different players, different positions. And yeah, you just can't really critique Man City, to be honest. They've been so strong. I think that kind of coming back to sort of the Rob Holding analogy slightly. Who would have thought we'd have such a pivotal part in the podcast? <laughs> I know. In terms of sometimes you need a body. Mm. And I think he's the best body that was available. But they needed a body more than they needed to pay the right price. And that's why they've got Mateus Nunez. Well, also, uh, the strength in depth they have is insane. If you but look, it is a tight squad, well, though. Yeah, okay. So strength in depth is probably the wrong phrasing. The quality of every individual they have is so high. Their World Cup squad's the best. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? If you do yeah. 23 names. So, on that basis, he... Not because he's not capable of playing at a top, top level, 
but he just comes into a ridiculously high ceiling group. And Jack Grealish spoke about this when he first rocked up at Manchester City. He'd been at Villa, he'd been the main man, and he said it took him 12, 18 months to get up to speed with what was expected of him. And, you know, that is part and parcel of being a part of a, a club that have just won the treble. I do think he will get probably 15 appearances across the whole campaign. Is that enough to justify the move? You'll have to ask him. You know, it's, it's... Yeah, well, I mean, he, he was willing to go on strike for the move, so he obviously wanted it. Uh, let's finish off with this one. Mbappe's transfer antics over the summer means that Real Madrid are already preparing a tactic for him. Mbappe's reluctance to join Al-Hilal for an unfathomable amount of money may suggest that he only has eyes on Madrid. However, he has promised PSG that he will sign a new deal. Has he? But the transfer window is closed and he's still not signed anything yet. Meaning he's still waiting for Real Madrid, question mark? <laughs> By now we know that Real Madrid are playing with a diamond, which sees Rodrigo and Vinicius Jr. playing as split strikers who are allowed to drift wide if they need. Who is this formation literally perfect for? Mbappe. And who's doing a video on this exact tactic soon on the James Norris Allcott channel? Me. So it would be strange if someone else It would be really odd, wouldn't it? Um, and actually we're going to do a podcast because uh, I thought, oh, it's just too good to talk about. Now, there's a little twist to this. We're going to talk about Real Madrid, but we're actually going to talk about um, AC Milan as well with Dev, who's probably here any minute now. Uh, Dev Bajo, who was on last week, who's written a book about AC Milan and Ancelotti. More on that soon. I'm waffling. But these transfer antics, the Mbappe thing, I, this is one I just... It's been wild, this, hasn't it? And so where will he be in a year's time? He's not going to sign it, is he? He's not going to sign for PSG. No. He's but, not. But, but he said that he's promised that he's going to. What? He's not. He will go to Real Madrid next year. He will. Surely. Yeah. Well, yeah, because, I mean, let's be real. He's turned down an insane amount of money to go to Saudi Arabia. And, and that in itself is, in a strange way, I find it quite heartwarming. I know that sounds ridiculous because he is prioritising the size of a club and, and the the majesty that comes with representing Real Madrid mm. over an, a quite insane amount of funding. I, I, you could argue he doesn't need it, but then who does truly need it? Yeah. You know, I have a genuine level of respect for the fact that he wants to go and play for Real Madrid and potentially it, it depends how you come down on it, whether it's player power gone mad or whether it's a player knowing his worth and saying, I don't care. The problem I always had with it was there was this narrative a few weeks back where PSG were like, well, we won't play you. That's never going to happen. Yeah. It's just not... Because imagine having not only someone who's earning that much money, but someone that good. Yeah. And then just letting him leave for free. It's just not going to occur. No. So he's come back in the team. I think he scored two against Leon before the international break. I'm sure he'll see out this season and then goes around Madrid and they'll be unhappy with it, but everyone will move on. I did want to finish you with a tweet I put out because I asked as much as players been sort of blocked and not being able to go where they want to go. What about the players that you've missed out on this season? And we've got some good ones. So Thomas Martin, who's Nigel Martin's son, he says uh, Nonto to Everton, especially after losing a Wobi and uh, Damari Gray. Damari Gray, who was, was one that we had on the, the um, running order this week. He's obviously made a move to, to Saudi. He's gone to play with under Gerrard and play with Henderson and after it all kicked off for Everton I think we said at the start of the window he was one that they kind of needed to go because you could have got some decent money for him but they obviously weren't able to do that they've lost a Wobie as well so it's a dangerous time for them the one that keeps coming up is Madison to Newcastle in terms of a, a missed 
opportunity there because that did feel like it was a, a bit of a tap in for Newcastle and I'm still slightly surprised that Madison went to Tottenham if I'm honest. I thought he would have wanted that that move. Maybe you know, maybe he wanted to be in London, I don't know. Maybe found that a bit more sort of appetizing for him. The fact they went to Tottenham and for a bit of a what feels like a bit of a bargain. We're talking fifty three million, was it forty million for Madison? Yeah, forty right? million everyone I mean there was that quote the other day when Postagoglu got asked and he said forty million pound bargain. I don't know what world you're living in. But yeah. That in itself is obviously reductive. It's an incredibly good transfer fee for someone of his quality. So in terms of him going to Tottenham instead of Newcastle, I wanted to kind of finish on that. Is there is that a seismic ripple effect in terms of what could occur for Tottenham this year and what could occur for Newcastle this year? Now, it's not all doom and gloom for Newcastle. I think they've had a re- really tough set of fixtures mm. to start with. And they have brought in some exciting players as well. But not getting someone like Madison and importantly keeping him away from Tottenham, do you think it would have made that much of a difference or would they have been able to bring someone else in? I think that Madison to Spurs, I mean, I don't know, obviously, the ins and outs of his conversations with the coaching staff, but I think Postacoglu was quite key. He had his conversations with him, sold him on the idea. It seems like whenever Postacoglu sets his heart on having somebody, he's able to woo them successfully. And potentially, you know, James Madison has viewed Newcastle as a great now option and he's viewed Spurs as a better long-term option because I sort of feel like with Harry Kane going there's a bit of a power vacuum that he can then step into mm. more freely. I think Son is actually... Which he's loving, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. He's enjoying it. He, he's got, not main character syndrome, but I think he enjoys being, you know, that, that, that sort of headline grabber. There was, yeah, but that's, uh, what, that's what you want a 10 to be like. Yeah, right? and he has that certain flashiness to his game. Yeah. You know, there was that clip at Bournemouth where they were giving him a bit of stick that's and he superb. rolled the ball out of the quadrant, but he seems to just thrive in that. So, you know, Spurs are a huge club. They've got a massive fan base. They probably will. I mean, I've said it, over the last couple of weeks. I think they're getting back in the Champions League without question. And, you know, he can be one of the poster boys for that charge back up. So do I. I've just realised I've popped them in there. So, like, fifth this year as well. Not even fourth. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. No no European football. I don't want to end it on this one, but congratulations (laughs) to Brighton, according to me, getting in the Champions League this year. Please don't. Please don't. I mean, could definitely happen. Right. Daniel. Where can people find you? Where would you like them to go and find you? They can go onto Twitter and type in HLTCO. They can type in HLTCO on YouTube or they can type in HLTCO on Patreon.com. Okay. Um, I did find, did someone say something about, you were talking about Crystal Palace and someone said, what does this guy know or something like that? <laughs> no, someone, someone said, well, unless I'm misconstruing the tweet you're talking about, they went, something along the lines of you wouldn't know this guy was a Palace fan with the way that he tweets. And I said, I've only recorded a Palace podcast every morning for the last five years and spent the last day doing hour-by-hour hour updates of our transfer window Amazing. and the closure of it. But, you know, that's social media. It is indeed. Uh, there we go. We bookended it. Right. Uh, thank you so much, mate. Really, really appreciate it. Oh, Absolutely love chatting football with you. Guys, go. If you want to, you know, have a trusted voice there, Daniel is your guy. Go check him out on YouTube. He's p- posting lots more videos now, making a real push there. So go and give him a subscribe. Um, you probably follow him already, but make sure you do on Twitter as well. And if you haven't, as of yet, please do consider giving us a five-star rating. Uh, we're marching towards 4,000 five-star ratings, and you could be one of those impressive and wonderful people. So please do consider doing it. Check out all the other podcasts that we have on The Ripple Effect, and have a great day.